0: Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and I'm thrilled to have Dr. J. Carl Laney on the program today. He does not like to be called doctor, so henceforth I will only refer to him as Carl. <laughs> but Carl and I share a love for the land of Israel. The first time Carl and I met was actually in Israel. I knew of Carl. He is a prolific author. There's a series that Moody Bible Institute did years ago called Everyman's Bible Commentaries, and I think... That's probably my first encounter with your name. You wrote First and Second Samuel, Zechariah, John, Ezra, Nehemiah, and others. And then at some point, which we're going to hear about your story, you started getting really deeply involved in Israel. If you go to Carl's site, which we'll have in the links below, you can read a little bit about his personal life and see some great pictures of him, trout fishing, tinkering on his jeeps <laughs> with his beautiful wife. Carl taught for 41 years at Western Seminary in Portland. That is a a, a great accomplishment. So first of all, Carl, thanks for
1: coming on the program today. Thank you, Michael. It's a wonderful opportunity. So
0: give us a little bit of a story. You're born in Georgia. Where in, in Georgia were you born?
1: I was born in Dublin, Georgia. My folks had met during World War II, and my dad was from the state of Washington, He was hospitalized in Dublin, Georgia, and there he met a nice nurse who introduced him to the lady who became my mother. I love it. (laughs) So, where is Dublin? Dublin is south of Macon. It's right in central Georgia, and great for watermelon and peaches (laughs) and all the delicious fruit. that. I enjoyed as a boy.
0: <laughs> I was I was born in Atlanta, so you know, it's uh, Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody thinks I'm a okay. Texan, but I was actually born in Atlanta. Uh, if you've never oh, yeah. seen Jay Laney, he always sports a red bandana. Why do you always wear that red bandana, Carl? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it keeps my neck from burning oh. in the sun. It protects my neck when I'm wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> I thought it
0: was an homage to John Wayne. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> well, let's start, you know, uh, I mean, obviously we can talk about your career, but I want to talk about Israel, you have a number of texts out, and your newest book is Lainey's Israel Guide. Is that correct?
1: That's correct, yes.
0: Obviously, we share a love for the land. So when did Carl first go to Israel, and, and how did that pique your
1: interest? Yes, it was 1973, seems like a long time ago, but I was a student at Western Seminary. Dr. Douglas Young came to our campus, and he said, would anybody be interested in going to Israel and studying there? And boy, that piqued my interest. Uh, Two years later, Nancy and I went to Israel and stayed for the summer studying at the Institute of Holy Land Studies, which is now the Jerusalem University College. And it was a life-defining experience for me, Michael. I studied under a fellow named Jim Monson, and he had a love for the land. And what he communicated was his enthusiasm for the land. And I caught the bug. From that time on, I've been a student of the land of Israel. I did my THM thesis on the geopolitics of the Judean hill country, Mm. and then my doctoral dissertation on selective geographical problems in the life of Christ. So it all started in the summer of
0: 1973. (laughs) Were you in high school, were you kind of a study nerd
1: scholar by nature, or did that awaken in Uh, seminary? Michael, I wasn't a a real student until I got to seminary. I mean, I graduated from high school by the skin of my teeth. I graduated from college, but it wasn't until I started studying the Bible that I really became interested in academics and began to really excel. And then I went on to Dallas Seminary for doctoral studies after Western.
0: I appreciate your differential not being called doctor I I have the same feeling I, I the THD and PhD guys always go you got real doctorates I just got a drive-by degree <laughs> with my D-men compared to what you guys had to endure oh no, so, no. I, I respect it highly well let's talk I want to ask you a hundred questions but and I must tell our friends and audience I don't know how many hundreds of interviews we've done Carl Laney is the only person I've ever interviewed who sent me the questions I was supposed to ask him <laughs> I'm kidding, but I I did get a good laugh out of it. I go, actually, these are good questions. So, you know, um, first of all, you said geopolitical problems in Judean wilderness and so forth. Give folks that have never been to Israel, give them a a 25 to 50 words synopsis of what's going on in this piece of real estate the Via Maris, sometimes we call it the way of the sea, where if you're going to travel in that region in the Middle East, you have to go through Israel, essentially. And why is this piece of dirt so important,
1: Carl? Well, God has a plan to reach all the nations of the world. And when he chose a place to reveal himself and to send his son, he chose the land of Israel because it is the land bridge between the three continents, Africa, europe and asia and anybody traveling in that region has to go through the land of israel and so jesus was sent to the land of israel to reveal the light of the world to the world Mm. and so it was strategically located jerusalem really is in the center of the nations ezekiel in fact mentions that so this is the place where god revealed himself it's the place where redemption history has taken place there's a lot of conflict. We're in a, in a light, darkness, God-Satan conflict that continues today. And so there's a lot of conflict over this land. And God has used this land to reveal his son. But we see there's a lot of animosity against the people who live there. Mm-hmm. And so the Arab-Israeli conflict is an evident of that. People are sometimes surprised. Why can't these folks get along? Well, there's a spiritual battle going on in that land. God's going to win the battle, but there is a conflict, and, and we can see that in the news pretty much every day.
0: When I study the Old Testament, I always talk about the book of Judges being one of the darkest, if not the darkest chapters of Israel's history that ends in horrible civil war and a brother killing brother, yeah. tribal killing tribal, and then it becomes these individual judges as opposed to you know delivering the nation and the people. It's individualistic. But what I find striking is when you look at that piece of land— And all the conflict throughout all of history, how in the world did the Dome of the Rock find its way on Mount Moriah? (laughs) I mean, you you think about, there could be no more, I mean, Antiochus Epiphanes allegedly sacrifices a pig, right? But when you think about the most holy Islamic site being in feet proximity of Mount Moriah, where Abraham put
1: a knife to Isaac's throat, help me out, Carl. Well, you know, that's, again, part of that spiritual battle. When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, the Christians figured this was God's judgment on the people who had rejected Jesus. And so, they left the site of the temple abandoned and pretty much became a garbage dump. And then in the 600s, the Muslim conquest took place, and they cleared the site and said, we're going to show that Islam supersedes Judaism and Christianity. And so, they put the Dome of the Rock, right there on that site of Mount Moriah, and they really matched it to the Church of the Resurrection in terms of the dome. The domes are approximately the same size. So they were saying, theologically, Islam has superseded Christianity and Judaism, and so that's why it's there today. Now, in 1967, the Israelis took East Jerusalem, but they left that dome under Islamic authority, And so the Islamic authority governs that site today.
0: Well, and it'd be World War III if, you know, I mean, it would. I mean, if the Arabs (laughs) uh, thought something was, I mean, you and I've been, I've been in the Dome of the Rock. I've been in the al Mosque many, many times historically. Now, of course, it's more complex to go in there if you wanted Mm -hmm. to. But point being, it just, the first time I was up there, and I know everyone has a first time experience, it just struck me that the God of the universe The place where he would house his name, not physically Mm -hmm. needing a home, but where he'd house his name, he allows, you know, this evil spiritual battle to take camp. And I mean, it's just, it blows my mind. Every time I go there, I just shake my head in disbelief. (laughs) And you probably encountered the same thing. Like last time we were up there, the kids that come up and pretend they're going to, you know, you're going to hurt them and fall on the ground. The women throw rocks and it's, it's sort of interesting, but I've never had anyone hurt, but it's just, it's interesting how this forgive
1: me. Evil has Mm -hmm. just crept over that Mount Moriah. Yes, definitely. It's a conflict between light and darkness, mm. belief and unbelief, God and Satan. And and we see it there in the land of Israel and in Jerusalem.
0: I was just teaching on First Chronicles 29 to an audience where David's blessing God for all the building supplies that he's assembled mm. for Solomon to build the temple complex. I'm careful with these numbers. They're illustrative at best. But it was something like $216 billion worth of gold and silver in today's market, you know, the tons of materials. But I'm struck with, what do you think that, in Carl's sanctified imagination, what would that have looked like when Solomon, was it seven years, built that complex? and And the gold, apparently, you could see from a distance.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it must have been a magnificent thing. And so that temple was beautiful. It was destroyed. There was a smaller temple rebuilt during the restoration period. And then Herod came along, built an even larger facility there. So the rabbi said, if, if you've not seen the temple in Jerusalem, you've not seen a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was a beautiful building and magnificent with all the adornments. And you can read about it in Scripture and see the gold and the carvings. And, and we have some good models of it today, yes. but nothing matches the real thing. Yes.
0: yes. <laughs> Let's talk about archaeology a bit. I was intrigued because when I go over there, I I look at these, you know, some of the sites and and like you, you've been many more times than me, but one of the first times we went to the city of David, they had only excavated about literally 30 feet and the docent Mm -hmm. took me down, which they will often do the leaders. They took you down and said, this is what we're doing. Now you can walk all the way down, you know, a magnificent city of David. That is the most backbreaking, tedious, unappealing work on the planet. (laughs) But Carl has gone over there and done digs. Tell us about
1: this. (laughs) Oh, it's it's a wonderful experience, Michael. You know, you get into the dirt of the land of Israel when you excavate. (laughs) And you really go back in history, and that's what's so fun about it. You really begin to uncover the physical history, the, the cultural background of the land of the Bible. And to me, it's a labor of love because Mm -hmm. I love the land and I want to help its, its history to come forth. Now, we have the history, of course, in the Bible, but here you have physical, tangible, material remains from the time of David, from the time of Abraham. From the time of Jesus. And that is really exciting. In addition to the fun of exploring and uncovering interesting things, you also meet some wonderful people. I remember excavating at Beit Sida with a Jewish man for two weeks. And for two weeks, we got to work in this one square together. During that time, he learned about me and I learned about him. And, you know, I didn't force the gospel on him. But by the end of the two weeks, he had heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd had some wonderful conversations about the Lord and about God's word. And so you meet some wonderful people.
0: And I know it's a silly question, maybe, but did you find anything? I mean, coins and shards and what that are common, but did you find anything that Carl was like, wow, this is significant
1: to me? There are lots of finds that take place during an excavation. I personally have never found anything except broken pottery, which I found a lot of that. But during the excavations that I participated in, for example, Tel Kassila, which is not identified as a biblical site, but it's just north of Tel Aviv. And it's a Philistine city with a temple like the temple in which we see illustrated in the book of Judges, where Samson pulled down the two pillars and, and destroyed himself. But the interesting thing, that site illustrates the the background of the Philistine worship. And there in that excavation, the summer we were there, they found a cult center, kind of like the Holy of Holies, with two stands on which were placed incense burners. And so these incense burners were discovered, and Ami Mazar, who was excavating the site at the time, explained all this to us. And later on, those incense burners from Tel Kassila were placed in the Israel Museum. So whenever I go there, I like to point out that I was there there. (laughs) when those were discovered. (laughs) So now you pronounce his name Nasur? Mazar, Ami Mazar.
0: He was the national treasure, right? He's the guy that found Herod's... Oh, yeah i never forget Ronnie Cohen, who I'm sure, you know, is a, a dear friend of mine. And he's told me the story of him finding Herod's tomb and how he dug, you know, up there in the Herodium. And then he moved over a few feet and he actually he died there. Did he not? Did he fall? And
1: yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But a national yeah, And that treasure. wasn't Mazar. That was another excavator. Oh, but, forgive uh, me.
0: For, okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: That's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Mazar excavated at Beit Shan and a number of other sites, but he was just a doctoral student when he was at Tel Kassila. And so he, <laughs> that was before he had gray hair, but uh, <laughs> his niece, I believe is Elat Mazar. Elat Mazar excavated the city of David. Interesting. Yeah. So Interesting.
0: for our folks that you and I use the word tell a lot, and I have a way of explaining a tell that it's rubble upon rubble upon rubble. Mm -hmm. Megiddo, I think there's something like 26 tells. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Explain to folks who've never been there or seen it, what is the significance of these layers of tell debris, how it happens? Why would they rubble the city and build on
1: top of it? An ancient city was usually built on a hill And so they put walls around the hill to protect it from their enemies. Well, somebody stronger than them came along and destroyed the city, smoothed out the rubble, and built a new city on top of it. And then that was destroyed, and someone else came along and built a new city. So over time, say at at, uh, Megiddo, 20-some levels Mm -hmm. built up to what is called a tell, And the word tell simply means a mound. It's not a hill, it's an artificial mound that was built up by successive layers of destruction and rebuilding. And so Megiddo is a, is a great example of a tell or a mound that is multiple layers of past civilizations.
0: It's interesting, because again, I remember early on going to Megiddo and looking at these soft mounds, if you want to refer to them that way, uh-huh. and realizing anywhere you dug you yes. would find this strata and it's almost <laughs> it's crazy how that small piece of property the size of connecticut sometimes it's it's yeah. defined there's so much history there so much the civilizations that have come and gone as you look at i'm gonna go back to geopolitical for a minute you talked about arabs in asia and africa and this what i refer to the via maris or the international highway present day what do you see as the main conflict from a geopolitical standpoint. And then I want to get your thoughts theologically on what's going on.
1: Well, the main conflict is who owns the land. And so if you believe that God gave this land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we see in scripture, then you'll say the Israeli people have a right to live on the land that was given to them by God. That's disputed. of course, by the Arab people, the Palestinian, as they like to refer to themselves today. That's disputed because they say, well, there was no real promise to Abraham. This was a promise to Ishmael. And so they basically switch this around. So the debate is who owns the land and the particular land in dispute now is the West Bank area, the area of Judea and Samaria, which is referred to as the West Bank because it's west of the Jordan River. And this land was originally conquered by Jordan in the War of 1948, and they also took Jerusalem. In 67, Israel took that land back and it became occupied territory that Israel now claims as their own land, part of the promise that God gave the people of Israel. Now, I can defend Israel's claim for the land from scripture, but I also can claim it from history. There was a war that took place And the Arab League lost, and Israel was able to take that land back. Now, Jordan has given up any rights to the land, so Israel is claiming that land, and there's been a lot of settlements put on that land. Others are saying, no, we need to give that land back to the Arabs or the Palestinians. But they already got the land, which is east of the river Jordan, Mm -hmm. and that's the, the state of Jordan. That was given to them by the United Nations when they divided up what was the Arab lands after the First World War. And so all of this land has been divided, but it's still being disputed.
0: What's your take on the etymology, the origin of the word
1: Palestinian? Well, that is a word that is basically the Latin derivation of Philistine. And so it goes back to the Philistines. And when the Romans started taking this land, they began using this name. It's not the land of the Judeans. It's the land of the Philistines. And it was a way to diminish Israel's claim to the land to really rewrite the history of this land, saying the Jews aren't here. It's the Philistines. And so this name Palestine was used before 1948 to refer to the land. It was the the land that had been part of the islamic kingdom and the islamic rule but it was then called palestine and a a jew living in this land was a palestinian jew and a arab living in this land was a palestinian arab they were all palestinians but then with uh, 1948 things changed and the israelis took the name israeli and the palestinian or the arab people began using this name palestinian And with Yasser Arafat, he really began this uh, Palestinian liberation front, claiming this name as the ethnic people of Arab descent.
0: I know you've been involved in this far more than I have, but the Palestinian Christians, as sometimes they're referred to, we certainly have Arabs that are believers who live in that area. But the disputed lands and what we see in the news, unfortunately, is not very well characterized what's actually going on with the so-called West Bank and running people out of their homes and so forth. But you know, I have acquaintances, and we'll call them friends, in the States who are Palestinian, and they hate Israel. They hate the Jew and all things. And if they find out I go lead tours to Israel, they're not happy about it. We've had other Friends that have gone over there under the guise of a Palestinian tour and had a very different experience over there. And I don't know what you know how you approach that, but I would appreciate your your thoughts because I don't want to just, you know, dismiss these arguments in a cavalier way, but there is no biblical theological standing, or is there?
1: That's good, Michael. A good question. And when I take people to Israel, I say, Don't form an opinion. Just listen to the voices of the people who are there. It's hard not to form an opinion. I certainly have an opinion myself. But we need to do a lot of listening instead of telling other people what we think. It's an issue of the Israelis and the Arab people or the Palestinian people. And, you know, I know that one day it's going to be resolved. And it's going to be resolved justly. When the Lord returns, (laughs) he's going to take care of this, and it's going to be resolved justly. As you mentioned, there are Palestinian believers, and they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And they've suffered a great deal through this conflict, as have our our Messianic Jews living in the land as well. So we've got brothers and sisters on both sides the former student, Joel Goldberg, who works with Israeli youth, both Arab and Israeli, and he works to help them to reconcile. And he says, in Christ, you're one. Mm -hmm. And he really encourages a peaceful relationship between the Arabs and the Palestinians once they know Christ. And I think that's the solution.
0: (laughs) It was Golda Meir who said, there won't be any more war until you Oh, help me out, Carl. You, you love them less, less than you hate. You love your children less than you hate the Jew or something like that. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah I, I
1: think something along those lines. I remember her saying to Sadat when he visited Israel, he says, one day I want our grandchildren yes. to be at peace with one another. And yes. I thought that was so beautiful. And Sadat, he came to Israel to help the peace process. And it was, a, it was a sacrificial thing. He got assassinated as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but peacemakers tend to get assassinated. Rabin got assassinated yes. as a peacemaker. That's a wild and, story. Um, yeah. yeah. A,
0: well, let's go back to people listening to you and me right now. I've never been to Israel. And you know as well as I do number one, there are afraid. I'm afraid to go to Israel. I go, well, if you you ski and they go, yeah, we ski every year and you're not afraid of hitting your head. Well, and I go, there's less (laughs) chance of you getting injured in Israel than there's hitting your head on a ski run in Breckenridge, but help us out, Carl. What do you say to folks when they go, Carl, I'm afraid.
1: I say one of the safest places in all the world is the land of Israel. It's very secure. It's safer than downtown Portland, where I live. It's safer than downtown New York. It's safer well, now, wait than downtown. A minute. That's not Maine. saying much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> downtown Portland, but come pe- on. <laughs> <laughs> but people go to these places. True. I go to Jerusalem, and I find there are soldiers with weapons. There is security, but you find children playing in the streets, yep. playing in the late at night in the playgrounds. And I've never found any situation in Israel where I have felt fear. I have felt fear going to downtown Portland. (laughs) (laughs) Yet we do things that are more in our comfort zone. But I find that Israel is a very, very safe place to go. And the people we go with know the land. They know the places to avoid. We're not going into Gaza where there is trouble. We're not frequenting the borders where there can be conflict. We go to the archaeological sites. We find nobody's there. <laughs> right, that's it's true. It's a really they don't safe care. place. They don't care
0: about those crazy Westerners going out in the wilderness, going, What are you doing out there in the park? Yeah, yeah it, it's interesting. And the, and the
1: Palestinians who are against Israel are not against American tourists. We come bringing dollars. Yeah. And they're glad to receive us. Yes, they are. And I found that the Palestinian people can be very warm and hospitable. They don't like Israel, but they're warm and hospitable toward visitors who bring their dollars.
0: <laughs> I, I tell folks that have never traveled, I go, the Ben-Gurion is the safest airport on the planet. Yeah. And I, I've Amen. never, I mean, if, if everybody did, quote, TSA the way they do it, we'd have a lot less issues going on. But, yeah, we, we don't always learn from our friends. They've never been to Israel Give me the top three or four reasons Carl says you need to. Charlie Dyer, who's a dear friend of ours, yeah. says it's God's will for you to go to Israel. And, then, and, I, and I always say, and if you don't go now, you're going to go later. So you know, what are two or three reasons you think folks should
1: go? Well, you know, the, the biggest reason, I think, is that we're commanded in the Hebrew Bible to go up to Jerusalem. Three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a great cost, and it took time, time away from work, time away from agriculture. There was a command to go up to Jerusalem and to celebrate the feasts and to see what God has done. So I say over a lifetime, we, particularly as Americans, have the resources to buy houses, to buy cars, to buy computers, to buy diamonds, we should take some of that money, and in the biblical period, it was at least one-tenth of your, of your annual income was to be spent going up to the feasts in Jerusalem. So take some of that money that God has entrusted to you and go to the land of the Bible, which will make the Bible come alive in your own reading. You'll walk in the footsteps of the apostles and Jesus. It'll enhance your spiritual life like nothing else that I'm aware of. Going on a tour to Israel is like going to seminary for a year and you sink into the scripture, you begin to read the land of the Bible as you read the Bible. Seeing the places where Jesus ministered, standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, just brings to life the experience you have when you read the Bible in black and white. And all of a sudden, you're seeing it in a living color, and you know those places, and you've been there. And so, this June, I'm taking my family to Israel. Oh, nice. And all 17 of them. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and here's the reason. Here's the reason, Michael. I could leave this money to them and they could spend it on refrigerators and cars after I die. But what I want to do is have them experience the land. And it's a chunk of change, yeah. but it's I'd rather see it spent in this way and used in this way to enhance their spiritual lives than to leave it as an inheritance. Consumer, yeah.
0: We were fortunate to take most of our family and, and our two oldest girls who were married before they had kids, and that remains oh. one of the highlights of Cindy's in yes. my life, experiencing <laughs> that with them and, and got to baptize my second daughter and her husband in the Jordan. They had not been baptized oh, wow. yet, and it was just, a, it's a precious memory. One of the things I appreciate about, I had been, you know, obviously seminary, all that kind of stuff, been pastoring many years, and there was a woman at the church I served in Northern Virginia, and she had led tours, and she came up to me one day and said, have you been to Israel? I said, no. And she kind of reprimanded me and got in my face, you have to go to Israel. And one of the elders was standing by, and he afterwards he says, I'll organize the whole thing, just tell me when you want to go. And so that was probably 90, I don't know four or five, and then I I don't know
1: I haven't gone as many times as you have. Do, have you kept count how many times you've gone? You know I I haven't. Uh, people yeah. ask me and I say I've i probably yeah. gone more than twenty times, but I oh I, I, I bet haven't you're closer actually. to a
0: hundred, aren't you?
1: <laughs> no, no, really? <laughs> no, 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 I think so. I know Charlie. I know
0: Charlie is he he doesn't talk about yeah, it, but, yeah. you know. But the yeah. thing that struck me was, and again, you know, you and I were trained in a certain way of reading the Bible. It. Western and Dallas and so forth, but the idea of Abraham, the promise of the land. Mm-hmm. And that always struck me, Carl, that this was not just a geographic, you know, vacation that he was giving Abram when when the, he bought the cave of Machpelah to bury Sarah, mm-hmm. all these mm-hmm. transactions, even the transaction we have with Ruth and the sandal and the acquisition that these things were codified, right? And so Mm -hmm. we have these, if you will, contractual codifications that this belonged to these people. And Mm -hmm. that's where, as you've already referenced, that's where our Messiah comes from. And to me, that was what blew my mind. And you look at all of the Middle East, and I've heard one scholar say Israel is less than 3% of the Middle Eastern culture and geographic, and yet more war has been fought over that 3%. And it's almost like God in his cosmic sense of humor is going, yeah, keep fighting over that little fingerling of land, and I come back, and I'm going to show you what it's all about. But it's intriguing to me how attached we are. You know, uh, you and I were born in Georgia. And I often say, what difference does it make where I came out of the uterus? You know, I'm born in Georgia. Well, Christianity was born in Israel, right? I mean, am I crazy tying these things together?
1: No, absolutely, absolutely, and there you see the beginnings of our, our our faith. You see its connection with Judaism, and how Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, mm-hmm. was born there in Bethlehem. You see the importance of Bethlehem to the biblical writers. Luke's Gospel. How many times does he mention Bethlehem in the birth narrative? There, he mentions it five times, and the prophet Micah mentions it. So you go to these places that are so central in biblical history and the revelation of God's plan of salvation and you get to visit those sites and you you not only read the scriptures but you see how the scriptures connect with the land and to me that's that's the exciting thing that's why I did my thesis on the geopolitics how does the scripture connect with the land and how does the land help us to better understand the scripture to me, it's it's life defining. Yeah. If it cost a million dollars, I'd be saving to go to Israel.
0: <laughs> Fortunately, it <laughs> but doesn't. It's cheaper yeah. than that. You, you yeah. can go on a it's real cheaper. cheap tour if you want. Yeah. Years ago, I was we lived in the D.C. area. I sat with a group. Louis McBurney, you may remember the name, had come to speak to a group of pastors, and I was invited. And there weren't that many of us, maybe thirty. We were sitting at those tables of eight or ten round. And rather than talk about the latest movie or what have you, I asked all these guys, and they were Anglican and Reformed and you know, all sorts of guys, and I said, is Israel key in your theology? Is it somehow plays a role, or is it just a piece of dirt? And we run around the table, Carl, and to a pastor, they all said, it's really not that important. It's just a piece of dirt. A brother who's with the Lord now, Michael Cromarty, was sitting beside me. And he said, well, given your uh, options of one, two, and three, it's more than a piece of dirt, but not much. And I remember sitting there, and of course, they didn't ask me what I thought, <laughs> <which> <laughs> They knew. Fine. They knew, yeah. But I was like, <laughs> this is so tragic that a believer doesn't understand, back, again, back to Abraham, this was a covenantal promise to be a blessing to mm-hmm. the world, uh, mm-hmm. go from your people from your to a land I will show you. He didn't even know where he was going, right? And yeah. you will be a blessing to the whole world, not just the Jew, but to the goyim. I don't know. I understand why. And I know you've encountered this too. Why is there, and let's say, if we can talk geopolitics in the States, this sort of flat affect
1: to Israel isn't that important? Well, that's, that's a good question. And I think it relates in part to Christendom's view of the Jewish people. Are there promises that have been given to Israel that God will fulfill Or are those promises transferred to the church? If they're transferred to the church, there is no future for Israel as a people. There is no future for the land of Israel as a a land. These things become unimportant, and God is just concerned now for the church without any future for the people of Israel. But I think that that's a faulty hermeneutic. That's taking the promises of God, and that's undermining God's integrity as a promise keeper. And I believe that God, when he makes a promise, will keep a promise. <laughs> he's the original promise keeper, Michael. Well,
0: if not, we're in big trouble elsewhere, right? We're I mean, in big trouble it, elsewhere, it's, true. it's striking to me, again, and I remember it was a collegial argument with a friend who was just, I mean, hes very reform-leaning, and I said, you know, the Israel never took, they took the whole land. I go, no, 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 read Judges chapter one. Much of the land had yet been conquered. And it's like, well, now that we have, you know, the church, we call that replacement theology, correct? Yes, The, yes. the church mm-hmm. replaces Israel. And so let me push back. What do we do with the Jew who denied the Messiah? And we could, if we follow that argument, say, well, then, of course, they abrogated their, it was unilateral covenant, bilateral covenant. They didn't hold up their part of the bargain, so God has, you
1: know, kicked them out. Well, the faulty view there is that there are bilateral covenants as we see the Sinai covenant. God says you do this and you'll be blessed. There's an agreement that God will bless on the basis of Israel's obedience. But the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to Abraham was unilateral. God didn't require Abraham to do anything except to receive the promise. And so God gave the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, which is unilateral. I will do this for you, apart from Israel's cooperation or obedience or belief. You will will be a blessing. (laughs) You will be a (laughs) blessing, absolutely. (laughs) It's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Well, again, it's just striking to me. I often wonder, you know, I know we all have blind spots, but I wonder you know where is my evangelical fundamental theology gotten me off? But I appreciate your you know calling us back to the hermeneutic how we study the Bible. If God said this in these unilateral covenants, whether it was the the rainbow, you know the universal flood, whether it was Abrahamic covenant, whether it was the new covenant, these are you know they cannot be abrogated. Let me go back. To, you mentioned Bethlehem, and I wanted to ask. I always have a challenge explaining to folks Nazareth and Bethlehem and why these two are important in the messianic prophecies. Help me out, help our friends out.
1: Well, Bethlehem's important because that's the city of David. That's where David was born. And David is a prototype of the Messiah. God had told David that he would have a son who would sit on his throne, who would rule and reign forever. And so it has to come from David's hometown, Bethlehem. And so Micah predicted that the Messiah, the promised one would be born in Bethlehem. And so, Bethlehem, and, let, and, let is key. and let me interrupt. Let me interrupt for yeah, a second. Yeah.
0: That's 2 Samuel <laughs> chapter seven, which is such a key passage, right? Because we understand yeah, that was a promise that there would always be a descendant on the throne of David, right? Yes. Okay, keep going.
1: Yeah. So, 2 Samuel seven verses twelve through sixteen. That's really key to who the Messiah is. And the interesting thing is when uh, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, reveals to Mary that she's going to have a son. He quotes that passage to her. He reminds her that this son comes as a descendant of David and the very words of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 16 are quoted by Gabriel to Mary to announce that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah. And so Mary was living in, in Nazareth. Well, they had to get to Bethlehem for this prophecy of Micah to be fulfilled. And God so arranged for the emperor of Rome to require these people to gather at their hometowns where their ancestral residence was, and to register for the census. And so Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus is born. Jesus wouldn't have made the impact had he been born in Nazareth. Nazareth was an out-of-the-way place. It was just a little berg up there in the hills above the Jezreel Valley, an isolated little farming community. But when Jesus began his ministry, where did he go? Yeah. Right down to the Via Maris at Capernaum where there could be travel and interaction with the whole world along that international highway.
0: You've been to the, sometimes referred to as the communal or public wine press in Nazareth.
1: Yes. yes. What,
0: what's your take on that? And Again, for folks that haven't been there. So Nazareth, there's a village there that they've kind of reenacted might be the best word. And it's not necessarily this is the very spot, but they've reenacted what it would be like to have sheep and and. Wool and an, and olive and it's it's illustrative it's helpful, but the thing that struck me most and I I really would appreciate your comments and thoughts and expanding on that, how much of that communal or public wine press area and could in fact Jesus as a young boy been around
1: there during uh, harvest time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't see any reason now. There's wine presses all over. They're, those right. are pretty common in Israel. But yeah, there's a wine press at Nazareth, and you can imagine that there at Nazareth there would have been the gathering of the grapes, harvesting of grapes, and all the people of the community would come and participate in the processing of those grapes into juice, which would then be made into wine. And the wine press is uh, is authentic. I mean, it's not yeah. just made up. It's an authentic wine press. There's a wine press also in the, at the garden tomb in that garden there. And so there's there's lots of those to see. But again, it's a good illustration of the cultural background of the, the land of the Bible.
0: When people pick up your newest book, Lainey's Israel Guide, what are they going to
1: find? What do you hope for them to, to gain when they buy your book? Michael, I hope that they will have an introduction to the land of the Bible that will prepare them for their visit to the land. And so it's designed as a guide. Basically, it's what I teach when I go to Israel. And I, I've been making this as a PDF file to send to my travelers and my students. And I decided, you know, I ought to put this into a book, <laughs> make it available for a small cost. And so it's a self-published book through Amazon and sells for $7.95. So it's not an expensive resource, but it's a. I made the maps. I developed the teaching Put in some interesting facts about Israel's history and some of the key figures in Israel's history, along with some discussion of the politics of Israel, mm-hmm. which is controversial, but yeah. I felt, felt, well, people want to know. So I, I laid it out there for them to consider.
0: Well, and I appreciate that because, you know, I've, I've gone, I don't know how many times either, but many, many times, and I've always used Charlie Dyer's book, and Charlie's just dropped yeah. the new book as well. And I yes. know, yeah, Charlie has Got a it right here. Yeah, it's tremendous. Charlie's in the
1: land of the book.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell our great, our, our pilgrims, read. I say, go to Kinkos, get it cut, put a spiral on it, and oh, take yeah. Charlie Dyer's book and Carl Laney's book, and uh, <laughs> because and the other thing I tell our folks because they don't all go with you and me, I say when you go, take your Bible, and in yes. the margin, when you're at uh, Har Megiddo, and we're yes. reading these passages, or when we're at the Garden of Gethsemane, you write the date and the time. Ah. March twenty third, twenty twenty three. I was at the Garden of Gethsemane, and the emails I have gotten over the last twenty years of people. I was reading my Bible, and twenty years ago today we were in, and, and you know it brings wow. it back because yeah. we forget. And as you know, even as many times as we go, things can be confusing. You know wh- where was that right. passage, and when this happened, and of course the timeline. So Carl Laney's book, Laney's. Israel guide in the show notes. You can find all about it. And I would encourage you to buy it and give it as a gift. One of the things I face, people say, well, what should I read before I go to Israel? And I go, well, the Bible. And then uh, I say, no, there are state parks. And so get Dr. Laney's book, get Dr. Dyer's book and go through some of the common sites. And then the other thing I, I encourage our folks to do when you come home, get a small group that you went with and go through 12 weeks, pick 12 sites and review the wow, notes and idea. read it because you and I both know, unless they go back to it, it becomes somewhat of a, oh, that was a great trip. And now I'm going to Breckenridge,
1: you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Repetition with variety is the key to learning. There That's you go. That's my there teaching principles. So, so reviewing, reviewing, reviewing and going back to Israel. Again and <laughs> again. again. Yes. Yeah, a- again and again. <laughs>
0: Dr. J. Carl Laney, who doesn't like to be called doctor, he's a former professor at Western Seminary for 41 years. He's written a ton of books, but I want to direct you to his works on Israel. You can find them anywhere books are purchased online. And again, the show notes will have information about Carl. It's been a delight to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Michael. on your trip with your family. I wish I could be a fly on the wall of the van to see how your kids and grandkids enjoy that experience.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.